The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, why don't you open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we, we've been reading the Bible in six months as a church, and this week we read all of 2 Samuel and the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings up until yesterday. And if listen, if you've been reading faithfully and you're up to speed, 1 Kings chapter 10 is a great place to stop reading the Bible. <laughs> it's a, everything's great right there. End of chapter 10, you're like, man, it doesn't explain what else is going on right now, but at least it's a high point because when you get into 1 Kings in chapter 11, that's when everything starts to fall apart after the death of Solomon. But today, uh, since we don't have time to kind of recap all of 2 Samuel and the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, I was just asking the Lord, where do you want us to direct our attention? And there are few chapters in the Bible that are as important to our understanding and familiarity as 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I know a lot of times we, you know, we want to have a reverence for God's word that every word has meaning and value to us, right? There's not, there shouldn't be a part of the scripture where we go, eh, take it or leave it. There's no book of the Bible that's like, they could have put that in the deleted scenes. <laughs> every bit of it is alive and active. Do you know that? But there are also some scenes, some chapters in the scriptures upon which so much more of the story is predicated that if you don't know what's going on right here and the significance of it, a bunch of what you read won't make sense. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of those chapters. So I want to read it to you, the first 17 verses. We're not going to spend time on David's response to what happens there, but I want to read to you 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 to 17. And if you're just joining us or you're not a student of the Bible, um, this is divine revelation from the mouth of God by 44 plus individual contributors written over 1600 years. And yet it tells the cohesive story that ultimately leads to Jesus and the life that we find in his name through faith. And so it has a prehistory of all of creation in the opening chapters of Genesis and it traces the storyline of God's revelation to humankind through various revelations he makes to people like Adam and Eve and Noah and family, ultimately Abraham, who becomes the father of Isaac and the grandfather of Jacob. Jacob has his name changed by God to Israel and has 12 sons by four women. It gets weird in the middle. And those 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. God brings his family of Israel as 70 people into Egypt to avoid a famine, saves their lives, but they become slaves in Egypt. And it's kind of an incubator of sorts where the family of Israel becomes the nation of Israel. And God then delivers them under the hand of Moses. You may have seen the 10 commandments when you were a kid, the Charleston Heston virgins only want to go, let my people go. I don't know that Charles, I don't know that um, Moses had a bad British accent. I don't know that he did. <laughs> But God delivers the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt into the wilderness where he has these encounters with them and reveals himself to them. And then under the leadership of Joshua, the following generation leads this conquest into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where God uses Israel to purge out the, the sin-soaked evil inhabitants under the power of these false gods who do terrible things and purges them out of this land and gives them this promised land. But they don't do it perfectly. They don't do it fully. And instead, they become infiltrated by the worship of false gods and so God raises up judges and deliverers in these kind of clans and tribes in order to bring deliverance to his people from their enemies. But then ultimately, because of the chaos that ensues, 
um, God creates uh, a king. Now, God was supposed to be their king, but the people asked for a human king. So 1 Samuel gives us the story of God giving the people the king they asked for and then followed by giving them the king that they need. And that king that they need is King David. And he is the king that unifies the nation of Israel and leads it into its fullest, most victorious era. And then he turns that kingdom over to his son, Solomon, who ends up having the the rich blessing of God and Israel prospers under Solomon's rule and reign. And that's kind of where we're at in the story. Now, it gets ugly from there because, because of David's sin and Solomon's sin, ultimately the kingdom is torn in two. And then because of the Israelites' rejection of God as their king and their Messiah and their savior and their God, um, ultimately these other nations, Assyria and Babylon, come in and they're able to, as an act of judgment, carry off the Israelites from the promised land and destroy them. And then the Old Testament ends with God prophetically talking about how he's going to bring a remnant of his people back in. And there's a little bit of rebuilding that takes place. And this is the scene upon which uh, Jesus enters the scene while Israel is oppressed by the Romans. And so this is kind of the storyline of the Bible. And so we're in this kind of high point where Israel has this king who's David and he has unified the kingdom and he's established the capital of Israel in Jerusalem. And he's shifted the center of uh, their worship to Israel to Israel's capital, Jerusalem, by bringing the Ark of the Covenant there. And so a lot of cool stuff has happened in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. But this very, very important chapter comes as there's this impulse from David, who has now established a palace for himself and built this beautiful, ornate home for himself. And he comes to the realization that he is living in a palace while the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God is living in a Coleman in the backyard. And so this is... This is what goes on in David's mind and how God responds. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17. Here's what it says. Now, when the king lived in his house, and I want to ask you to listen for the words house and rest and the associated words like dwell and so on. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved and with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And listen, and I will give you rest. 
from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Pretty good news right there, huh? But it gets better. He shall build a house for my name. This is speaking of Solomon. And dun, 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 plot twist. You ready? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Somebody say it. Forever, forever, that's a long time. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established. How long? Forever. Three times. God means it. That is a divine exclamation point. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God, we thank you for your word that's been read in our hearing. We thank you for the power that it has to open our eyes to see. God, I pray this morning as we turn our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts to this revelation about who the forever king is, the forever son of David who will reign on heaven's throne. God, I pray that you would find in this place contrite hearts who receive your word with fear and trembling. God, who are willing to give our allegiance to the one true king and to find the blessing of David in our own lives as we build our proverbial houses and our families. Holy Spirit, speak to us now, we pray. Your servants are listening in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. In um, 2015, Tiffany and I uh, bought what was a quasi-investment property. Um, we had had a really rough go of church life, and we realized that the church was our job and our friends and our life and our hobby, which was not a great thing. And so we bought uh, this old house to fix up, and we were gonna, just going to fix it and then sell it, maybe. And then she came, became pregnant with our fourth child, and this had an extra bedroom, and so instead of selling it, we moved into it. And it's pretty much been a project of ours for the last seven years. And this house had been built by, designed and built by the civil engineer who was the architect on record for the city of Daytona Beach and mapped out most of the streets that you're familiar with in the area. All of the plat maps have his name on them. This was his private home until he built a, became very wealthy and built a mansion on the ocean in Flagler. And after that, though, the Great Depression hit. This house was built in 1918. And the Great Depression kind of wiped out all of the real estate boom that had been happening in Florida. And all of these old homes uh, sat empty for a couple decades before they were picked up by various investors and turned into apartments. So this house was turned into a eight-unit apartment called Sherwood Apartments and was apartment building for a number of years. It had stairs built all over it and stuff closed in and kitchens added in weird places. And then it became a single-family home in the 90s for a brief period of time before it spent the last 35 years as a series of sober houses and halfway houses where it was uh, immediately just mistreated and destroyed and the only people who were happy to live there were the termites. 
And so we picked it up for next to nothing in 2015, and we gutted the whole entire thing. We replaced all of the electrical and the plumbing and the windows and the HVAC, and we did all this interior work and framing and drywall and all this kind of stuff, and we kind of tried to restore it to some semblance of its original self, although we left the scars. And uh, the one thing that I didn't have the expertise or the ability to redo was the roof and had some leaks that we knew about. And so we were, like many Floridians, just waiting for that fateful hurricane (laughs) to blow hard enough that it would knock down the cost of our roof into the range of our deductible. (laughs) And so that's what we did in 2017 after Hurricane Matthew the, the, the leaking happened and we called our insurance company and they did the inspection and the roof is terrible. And so we had a roofer come out and we took a reference from a person that we knew and we hired this roofer. And one of the cells that he had was, you know, they're, they're going to do our whole roof. It's a big roof. They're going to do the whole thing in like two days. So it wasn't going to stay open, which we were concerned about. And they came highly recommended. And so we had them do the roof. However, they, they did not replace any of the original flashing. So they took all the roof material off. They left the original flashing in place, which happened to be installed behind some cheap vinyl siding, but in front of multiple layers of wood, asbestos, and asphalt shingles. And none of that flashing held water at all. And so everything was fine. As long as the rain falls straight down, we're good. But anytime we would get a wind-driven rain, we would have multiple waterfalls on the inside of the house. And so we fought with the roofer and then the insurance company, and I tried every conceivable thing I could do to patch it and to fix it, and multiple layers of tar and tubes and caulk and siding, and I replaced all kinds of stuff trying to get this to go away. And then in our last round of hurricanes, yet again, just water pouring through the house. And so we finally were able to find a reputable roofer who replaced all of the flashing on the entire house and praise Jesus for the first time ever, we had sideways rain and no water feature in the dining room. Isn't that great news? Now, I tell the story because it's evidence of two things. One, when you buy an old house, when you buy a house near the ocean that's been there for a hundred years, you got a pretty good idea that that thing ain't going anywhere. You know what I'm saying? And yet, the way that we build our houses is going to have an impact. You do things the right way, you get a good result. You do things the wrong way, you do a wrong result. And one of the reasons I mention that is because 2 Samuel 7 is a foundational chapter for the rest of the Bible because it, it extends the covenant that God had continued to make with his people Israel specifically to David, and it adds new information to this covenant. And that information is that someone, this Messiah figure, this anointed one, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3 and 15, the son of Abraham, who was Isaac, who the blessing went to Jacob and not to Esau and then fled to the seven, uh, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And this prophecy about uh, the scepter not departing from Judah and all the expectation of the Israelites and how the Israelites were supposed to be this beacon of light and revelation of God to the rest of the world is having its laser focus placed on David and his lineage. Not only that, but specifically, there's going to be a royal line that a king is going to come from him directly one generation later in Solomon, who will in fact build the house of God, the temple of God. But that there is this extension of God's Davidic covenant and promise to all of God's people that there will be a forever king who's going to come of the lineage of, of David. And if you don't understand that, then a lot of what you're going to read in the rest of the Old Testament is not going to make any sense. 
and you aren't going to make heads or tails of the genealogies that we get in Matthew and Luke, and the gospels aren't going to make much sense, and the things Jesus says about himself don't make much sense, and the hope that the people around you have isn't going to make much sense, and so you kind of need to know 2 Samuel 7. Can I get amen? You guys remember when we used to watch movies on TV? Remember that before streaming? You'd have NBC, Night of the Movies, and you get your popcorn ready, and you couldn't pause live TV, and so you were yelling at everybody, shut up, shut up, it's starting! And then you'd watch a movie, and it would have like 87 commercials in it. And that was when you got, you were holding your pee till the commercial. Remember those days? Remember when you couldn't just pause the movie? You remember that? We've come a long way. And you remember all those movies would start with, this film has been edited for duration and content and formatted to fit your TV screen. Remember that? The kids here are like, what are you talking about? This is so archaic. Second Samuel 7 is one of those scenes that you can't just cut out of the movie. The movie would make zero sense. Maybe some of you guys watch one of those movies on TV and you're like, well, how did he get back to 1955 in the first place? I don't even know. This is one of those chapters. And so this is the story of how God is going to build David a house. And so you're going to watch this grow all throughout the rest of the scriptures. And it's going to help you to have handles for living in the world we live in now. Why are things the way they are and why is it not the way that it ought to be. In fact, this is the struggle of Psalm 89. Write that down later if you're a Bible student. Go, go read today Psalm 89. Psalm 89 refers to this heavily and all the symbolism of this forever kingdom of the house of God, God's promise to David. And then the psalmist struggles with, then why are things the way they are? And all of this is setting up an expectation for the prophetic revelation of who God's forever king, the son of David, would be. This is why we get passages like Isaiah 9, 6-7. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and for how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah 23, 5-6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, that's the southern kingdom, and Israel will dwell securely, that's the northern kingdom. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Isaiah 11, 1 to 2, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's dad. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and in the fear of the Lord. Do you see the expectation of who's coming? A branch is coming. A life-giving root is coming. A fulfillment of the promises that have been cut off, chopped down, is going to spring up. And when he comes, he is going to bring with him all of the promises of God. Do you see the expectation? This is why when you get to Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, at Christmas time in the nativity scenes, we hear the angel to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be what? No end. And to Joseph in a dream, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus 
for he will save his people from their sins. And the reason you get a genealogy in Matthew that differs slightly from the genealogy in Luke is because Jesus was both in the royal line by his stepfather, Joseph, and in the bloodline through his mother, Mary. And so Jesus is the forever king, and all of the scriptures in the New Testament make that explicitly clear, that God is doing something that he promised in 2 Samuel 7, and that is fulfilled in Jesus. And this is why Jesus has the right to reign. This is why he wore a crown of thorns, and above his head, the charge was king of the Jews. And when he died, he became not only a king who was willing to sacrifice himself to death, but the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And he was raised on the third day and received his kingship by ascending into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Father in majesty. And he is the ruler and the righteous ruler of this world. Now, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Why? Because he reigns from afar and he's watching and waiting. And he has filled every disciple of his with the spirit of God by cleansing us through the atonement of his sacrifice so that we might be heralds of the good news, not just good news of a personal savior for every individual, but good news of a great king who has the right to reign and who will return to set all things in justice. That's who our Jesus is. That's our message. And if your message does not include a King Jesus, it is not the full message. Do you know that? So this is the reality. And this is what Jesus, I mean, think about the way Jesus spoke when he was on this earth. In an era where the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the scribes, they presented themselves in their external garbs with their headpieces and phylacteries and flowing robes and and all, all of the way that they interacted with people. And they had all the reverence and they sat when they taught and everyone stood and listened and they spoke and read the words of Moses and of the prophets. And they sought to explain to people what they meant and how they should live their lives differently. And then Jesus comes on the scene who is a rabbi, but does not look like them or talk like them. No, because he was not a rabbi who went to all the formal training in all the schools in order to be a rabbi. No, he was a construction worker. And so he knew the words you weren't supposed to say in church. And his hands were calloused and hard and his stories connected to real life. And his face was sun scorched and he probably lost a little bit of hair right here just from always wiping the sweat. And at 30 years old, he would open his mouth to great crowds of people having done signs and wonders. And he would say things like, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Matthew 7, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And yeah, that's true. You know why? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. Just because you haven't bowed your knee to him doesn't mean the demons haven't. Just because you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus doesn't mean the disease hasn't. Just because you haven't made Jesus the king of your heart doesn't mean that signs and wonders won't be performed in his name because there's power in his name. Can I get an amen? And yet Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Who you, who you? We don't even have mutual friends on Facebook. Who are you? And then what does he say? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He points to what you did with your life. And so he says, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Isn't it good news? Doesn't matter how shabby your place is, if the foundation is good, it's not going anywhere. You may have a fixer, but if the slab is steady, then it's not going anywhere. You may not have something special and fancy, but if the foundation is good, then the future is secure. Jesus continues, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Doesn't matter how fancy your house is, how many bathrooms and bedrooms it has. Doesn't matter how deep your swimming pool is. If you build that house on a sand dune next to the Atlantic Ocean, it can fall right in, can it? And so Jesus says, there's a diff- the distinction, the distinction is if you listen, you obey. Why? Because he is the rightful king and the son of God and the promise of the father and the divine revelation. And so what he says ought to matter and ought to inform what we do. Now, here's the reality. Think about this for a second. Your fundamental beliefs doesn't mean I'm not talking about the things that you say or what you put in your bio. I'm talking about the core on the inside of you, your actual fundamental beliefs on the inside and your intimate relationships, those people that you care about the most and that you bend your life to accommodate your fundamental beliefs and your intimate relationships. These are the things that drive your priorities, all the things all those fundamental beliefs and your intimate relationships, the people that you care about and would do anything to preserve, protect, bless, provide for those people. That is what's going to drive your priorities and your choices. And ultimately is going to direct the outcome of your life. And Jesus is here saying that he ought to be the foundational relationship in your life. And he ought to be the one that shapes your fundamental beliefs. And it's only in receiving that from him and who he is that you are going to be able to build a life that lasts. That is profound. That's incredible. That is like cosmic insider trading. I know a thing that's going to make us all eternally wealthy. Do you see this? And he's saying, listen, listen to what I say. Don't fool yourselves because there's power in the name. Don't fool yourselves because you got those tingles on the back of your neck in that third song. That counts for nothing. If you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, do you see that? Because he's the king. So the question then becomes, who is Jesus to you? And what are you a part of? This was the conversation in Matthew 16, 13 to 18. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Jesus is doing a survey. What's the going word on the street? I want you to know Jesus doesn't give a rip what the people think, and you ought not to either, because the people change their mind regularly, and the people, even when they all agree, have terrible tastes. Do they not? Let every Super Bowl halftime show remind you of, of what the people think, okay? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He uses his whole name there. Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure it out, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, new name, new identity. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So God is looking for people who will bow the knee and say, you are who you say you are. And then let him tell you who you are. Because you are not Simon Bar Jonah. Jesus don't care who your daddy was. You are who he says you are. You are not Simon the reed shifting in the wind. You are Peter the rock. And I'm going to build something with you. Do you see it? Do you see what God wants to do? Then what are you going to build your life into? Peter got this. Peter got this in the way that he spoke to all of those who would listen to him. Pastor Peter, here's what he says. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see how God built David a house through his lineage that led to Jesus. Let's just take a minute and think about how David built his own house. Because David was the best king Israel ever had. David was the king that unified the tribes and started this period of peaceful Israel. David was the man who had a heart after God's own heart and who inclined himself towards God's proper worship. David was the one who chose Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and the religious center of the world and brought the Ark of the Covenant there. You remember in Deuteronomy, it says, and I'll show you a place, and I'll show you a place, and I'll show you a place, and I'll show you a place. And when you worship, and when you go, and when you celebrate, and David said, it's right here. David, David was a powerful man of faith. He was a bold and brave king. He accomplished victory after victory after victory. And God used him to bring the people of Israel into an unprecedented period of blessing in in David Awesome. But 2 Samuel also brackets David's good works and his faithfulness with the chinks in his armor. Because when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you're going to read, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Somebody forgot to set their alarm. 4 p.m. <gasps> oh, what do I want to do today? Whatever I want, I'm the king. He went for a walk on the roof of his house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. This is saying she had just gotten off her period. 
which meant David thought he was going to get away with something with her so that he thinks the child belongs to him so he can get away with this. But Uriah the Hittite is more righteous than David and refuses to go home when his men are in the field. And so he sleeps outside of David's palace. And when David realizes that Uriah is not going to do the thing that he needs him to do in order to get away with what he wants him to do, he sends a word to have Uriah killed. God confronts David's evil through Nathan the prophet. David's broken and repents and asks God's forgiveness. And God forgives him. Uriah's mommy, she don't forgive him. But God forgives him. And then 2 Samuel ends, chapter 24, where David commits a great evil, counts all of his fighting men so that he can put his trust in his army and not in his God. So David is not a perfect person. He is not the savior that the world needs, and he is not the king that Israel needs. And he is going to die like every other king before him and like everyone after him. But Jesus is the king forever. And he's the royal priest and the prophet of God. He brings all of the roles of God's revelation together. And he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he sits on the throne of his father, David. And he is the great prophet and apostle of our faith. He is everything summed up and he has defeated death and he will never die again. And so everyone who puts their faith in him receives that eternal blessing that's upon him. Life in his name. Isn't that good news? So now my question is, if you know that's true, how are you building your house? How are you building your house? What are you doing? Are you doing what Jesus has asked you to do? Let me show you a picture. In 2018, Hurricane Michael swept through the Gulf of Mexico and devastated the city of Mexico Beach, Florida. I don't know if you guys remember this or not. And in Mexico Beach, a bunch of houses that had been built in the 70s and had not been up to wind codes after Hurricane Andrew in 1994 were completely leveled to the ground. But months before this hurricane hit, um, a couple guys just finished building this house and they built it to, win, to withstand wind speeds of 250 miles an hour. They overbuilt this thing to the tune of 140% of its value was in concrete and rebar and everybody around them thought they was crazy <laughs> until a storm came and the wind blew and the rain fell and the waters rose. And when you look at Mexico beach, nearly all of the homes on that stretch of beach were completely decimated. And even some of the ones that you see standing there were so contorted and broken that they had to be ripped to the ground. They built on the rock. Do you see that? You see that? And this is what Jesus wants from you. He wants you to listen to what he says and follow him like he's the king. You know why? Because he is. Somebody say amen. amen. I want to show you this too, because I want to ask the worship team to come up here. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just freshly humble yourself, to come before the Lord and to say, you are king and I am not. And anywhere in my life where I am not listening to your words and doing them, I repent and I'm going to say, you are the boss. And I'm not going to say things like, no, Lord. No, Lord. That's not how this works. The answer is, yes, Lord. What's the question? You understand? Look back at the picture. I want to talk to you about your intimate relationships and your fundamental beliefs. Do you notice a little... 1970s built house directly behind that fortress being the only one standing. 
think there was anything special about the way that house was built? No, it was all about who their neighbor was. Listen, God wants to build something in you and through your life that creates a shelter even for those in proximity to you. God wants to do something in the choices that you make that preserves that generation of children that you're seeking to lead and to care for and to help to launch into the world. But if Jesus is not the king in this heart, then when he comes back from that throne, what he's going to say is, I don't, I don't know you. It wasn't about what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced. It's about who you knew. And I hope that there's somebody in my hearing right now that has never before ever in your life bowed the knee to Jesus and said, you are the righteous king of the universe and I am not. And I'm going to stop pretending like I am. And I'm going to turn to you in repentance and faith and say, please forgive me. My life is yours. If you can, in sincerity, pray that prayer. Today can be the first day where you become a recipient of eternal life, the grace of God by faith to be received in Jesus. But I think every single one of us need a little bit of a wake up call because we get quick to building our houses And we recognize that there's parts of this house that aren't done right. And there may be some water coming in the dining room ceiling in your life. There may be some intrusion when the storms come. Things are getting wet that shouldn't get wet. Things are blown and shaken that shouldn't be blown and shaken. And you need a reliable reference to come fix your problem. And Jesus is that person. Amen. And so it starts by opening your hands and inviting him to come to do for you what only he can do. Because there's no one like him and then you being willing to follow. So I want to pray for you. You guys will close your eyes. And as we pray, if you are here and you are saying, man, I need to get back on track. I need to, I need to make sure I'm lining up everything that I do with what Jesus has said. And you want to just turn towards him right now in allegiance to the one true king. I just want you with, with all of us here just to raise your hand, just shoot it up right now and say, I want to humble myself before the Lord right now. Thank you. Thank you. Isaiah 66. Can you put that on the screen? Caleb. I just want to give you this passage. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. I want to take just a minute to have an opportunity to tremble at his word. So the band's going to lead us in a final song. And if God is stirring you to make a movement towards King Jesus, a movement of allegiance or a movement of repentance or a movement to receive help, then I just want to invite you to come up out of your seat and have a moment with him right here at the altar.